Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly cloudy skies, some rain in parts of the city. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the plan for now is there will be high school sports this fall. And we were very restrictive. Uh, We were certainly more restrictive than what the executive order had us do. A conversation with Robin Hines, executive director of the Georgia High School Association. But first, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms addressed the media virtually today with an update on several areas related to the pandemic. Mayor Bottoms cited the most recent confirmed COVID-19 cases within the city and city employees. Fulton and DeKalb counties combined have 31,326 cases and 635 deaths. Fulton County had the highest number of new cases over the past three weeks. More than 35% of those cases were in the city of Atlanta, which points to the ongoing health disparities amongst African-American residents who accounted for nearly 41% of new diagnoses. Uh, the city of Atlanta, as far as we know, uh, have uh, as an organization, we've had a total of 289 employees to test positive for COVID-19. Out of those, 117 have recovered and returned to work. Uh, we are aware of 172 current cases, and I believe we've had deaths from two of our employees from COVID-19. Mayor Bottoms also announced the city will begin offering testing for essential workers at its wellness center. As of right now, the city of Atlanta is in the phase one of a reopening plan. The mayor also addressed her name among those potential candidates in the running for the Democratic nomination for vice president. As it relates to the vice president, I'll continue to refer questions on the vet to the Biden team. And as I've said before, I'll I'll say again, uh, Vice President Biden took all of the bumps, bruises and blows during his campaign. And if anybody knows what a good vice president should be, um, it's Vice President Biden. And I'm going to trust that he's going to make that decision. And and given the names that are being floated around, I I think he has a pretty stellar list of, of folk to choose from. Meanwhile, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 197,948 confirmed COVID-19 cases. There are 3,921 reported deaths. 19,426 are hospitalized. And of those, 3,556 are ICU admissions. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, Cherokee County schools are shutting down an entire second grade classroom after a student tested positive for COVID-19. This was at Sixes Elementary School. Students just came back to school this past Monday and it was all in-class instruction. A statement from the Cherokee County School District stated the teacher and those 20 students will quarantine for two weeks. 
As for the class, instruction will be taught online from the teacher's home. In other news, some WNBA players began wearing warm-up T-shirts to games last night with the message, Vote Warnock. That would be Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's running against Georgia U.S. Senator and Atlanta Dream co-owner Kelly Leffler. Now, last month, Senator Leffler wrote a letter to the WNBA opposing the league's support of Black Lives Matter. Players told reporters that the T-shirts supporting Warnock are a direct response to Leffler's statements about Black Lives Matter. In a tweet posted earlier today, Senator Leffler stood by her previous statements saying, quote, This is just more proof that out-of-control cancel culture wants to shut out anyone who disagrees with them. It's clear that the league is more concerned with playing politics than basketball, and I stand by what I wrote in June, close quote. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Unless you're driving, biking, or operating an e-scooter, I want you to raise your hand if you're the parent of a student, athlete, eagerly awaiting for cheerleading. Cross-country football, volleyball, one-act play, or fast-pitch softball practice to start. Maybe it's already begun. Well, there's going to be a slight change to when and how all of those practices will begin due to COVID-19 pandemic right here in the state of Georgia. Robin Hines is the executive director at the Georgia High School Association, and he joins Closer Look to discuss the outlook for high school sports this fall and the guidelines they have implemented. Director Hines, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well. Hanging in there. Let's be really clear. Let's face it. A good old Friday night high school football game or a Wednesday night volleyball match against a rival opponent, that doesn't work online. But at any time, was there a consideration to scrap the fall sports competition altogether? Did you all grapple with that at all? Everything is always on the table. And and as I'm sure that you're aware And I'll just start with saying in my 38 years in education, I've never experienced anything quite like this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what we say and everybody says uh, all the time that this situation is fluid and and it is absolutely fluid. But that I can say that it's never been our goal to scrap the seasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we saw the adverse effects that uh, scrapping the the spring seasons had on our student athletes and, uh, Nothing like that had ever happened before. You know, back at 9-11, I think the football season was postponed for one week. And beyond that, to scrap a whole season, it's difficult. And seeing those seniors who lost Mm -hmm. their senior seasons, uh, you know, it was devastating. And, and, And what we're challenged with at this point is finding a way that we can move forward as safely as possible while weighing the risk versus the benefits. So... Executive Hines, the deciding factors for you all where I'm imagining if you could make sure that there was all these safety measures in place. Did you get feedback from coaches, parents? What were the deciding factors that made you all say, you know what, we can do this. We have to implement a lot of measures here, but we can do this. Yeah, we uh, gathered information from uh, numerous places. You know, we gather national data. We look at, of course, you know, our data here in the state of Georgia. Uh, we received a lot of guidance from the National Federations of High Schools, which we are a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a uh, sports medicine advisory 
Council, which is uh, comprised of uh, several uh, physicians, registered nurses, athletic trainers, uh, other medical uh, first responders, this sort of thing. And, and they have been great. Uh, you know, they've spent a lot of time with us. We meet weekly uh, to talk about the data and these things. And of course, the, the Department of Public Health has been been really good as well. Uh, you know, the State Department of Education as well, and the governor's office, the governor's task force, mm -hmm. uh, in, in putting together some guidance. And, and we're seeing the whole situation evolve, and the recommendations from the CDC have recently changed. And, and I think that our relationship with the Department of Public Health is really going to help us. And what I'm talking about is guidance about how they work their infectious disease prevention plan. And it's still... Uh, mind-boggling at times to be honest let's get some clarity for our listeners too because you all have a lot a lot of COVID-19 guidelines I went through all of them for practices you did push some scrimmages back are the teams yes. eligible are they allowed to practice right now yes and if and if you look at the evolution of how we started uh when the governor closed schools mm -hmm. you know for the remainder of the school year we did as well once school ended, you know, we, we took June as, as to be that date. Uh, you know, typically we don't monitor those voluntary summer workouts, but under these circumstances, we felt that we needed to do that. And our uh, board agreed to a June 8th start date and we were very restrictive. Uh, we were certainly more restrictive than what the executive order had us do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we limited the numbers of, of, of athletes and coaches to 20. Uh, and that was at any given time as we moved forward through the, the numbers were increased. We eventually allowed sports specific things to come into play, such as balls, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, it's hard. But we did put a focus on conditioning because we felt that that was extremely important because our athletes had, had, had been sitting at home deconditioning for two and a half or three months. You Are see? you saying so, that these student athletes were eating a lot of burgers and fries, Executive Hines? Eh, they might have. <laughs> and some of them were, and to be honest, there were a lot of them that were, you know, during this time were, were, were playing club sports and, mm -hmm. you know, doing things that we wish didn't happen because, you know, you know, under our guidance and this sort of thing, it's a little more restrictive and yeah. these sorts of things. And, you know, there were reports of just thousands and thousands of volleyball players, for instance, meeting in baseball tournaments where social mm -hmm. distancing didn't happen. And, you know, we're just trying to quell the tide of what was going on with the cases at that time. And, and then as we move, we tried to keep our same calendar, which the acclimatization process for football starts on July the 27th. And we wanted to do that. And oh, and, and mentioned for football, we did things like added helmets because they were eventually able to compete against each other. Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind, we're still trying to keep that school community bubble there together with as little interaction. We don't have any type of competition seven on seven or thud camps or anything like that where they're competing with other communities and other schools yet at this time and that kind of goes back to what you referenced earlier uh that that we've pushed back those mm -hmm. scrimmages and, and those sorts of things you know certainly where football is concerned and and then 
the first of August was the actual first date of practice for, mm-hmm. th- for the fall activities. Okay. And, and when we look at our guidance, you know, we have, there are some activities and sports that are, that are high risk. You know, there are others that are moderate and others that are very low risk, you know, such as cross country, you know, mm-hmm. shouldn't have an issue with that. Uh, you know, some of the larger meets, there, there'll be some special concessions that probably need to be made. For- yeah. But football and volleyball, I mean, that's direct contact obviously you're right up close next to either your your teammate or, or an opponent and let me ask you uh, director Hines and I'll let you finish did you all require every student athlete to get tested before they could come before practice will start as well as coaches or how are you all monitoring that we did not uh you know when you when you look at that you know we're not necessarily a regulatory body that way mm-hmm. uh and and you know, my numbers may be a little bit wrong, but I read somewhere like, for instance, for a Division One football program, the cost of their testing program is somewhere north of $340,000, over $150,000 for a Division One basketball uh, thing. We certainly can't afford that. That would be an unfunded mandate, and our schools certainly can't afford that as well. But what we did was put in a, a pretty comprehensive screening process that they've gone through, and the coaches have done a really good job with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they screened out a lot of kids. Sometimes it was probably probably more restrictive than it needed to be. How'd they screen them out? Well, they come and they, they, many did temperature checks. Mm-hmm. You know, they asked them, are you feeling well today? Have you had a fever? Has anyone in your fa- in your household had a fever? Mm-hmm. Have you traveled anywhere, been, been around anyone that has been uh, tested positive for COVID-19? These sorts of things mm-hmm. that, you know, is a daily thing and 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 at the beginning you know somebody you know answered yes you know they would send them home and quarantine them and you know and then if you had a positive test there are some that just shut the program down for two weeks and sent them all home well as we've evolved and as the guidance has come through from you know our health department you know public health and those sorts of things and and we're becoming more versed at contact tracing you know that's not necessary mm-hmm. uh in, in all cases that you shut the whole program down because one or two kids become, uh, you know, test positive for that. Is there a and, case uh, where you would consider that? Is there a number of confirmed cases where you all might say, you know what, this is way too many. Some might say one is too many, but is there a number for you all? You all as an association may tell a school, look, we can't risk this. You know, I think that I think that our job as an association is to try to find a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a voluntary association. It's a it's a voluntary association of member schools. Uh, you know, the member schools. You know, I believe in local control. I certainly did as a as a superintendent. And you know, I would mention I was listening to your show uh, when you had the new superintendent from DeKalb County, who was very very impressive. And, and I was thinking, I, I think just like she does, you know, as, as she talked about, she needs to look at her data and she needs to look at her school and her community and do what's best for them. Uh, you know, the, the Georgia High School Association has never gotten into making medical decisions for a school or a school district. You know, that's mm-hmm. always been then you take take a uh, you, you've got a school and the George High School Association doesn't set the guidelines up for what happens when somebody's sitting in a class, uh, social studies class, test positive for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. You know, the school district has their infectious disease plan. That that also extends, you know, we're scholastic 
based sports. We should be an extension of the classroom. You know, those uh, local districts, local superintendents, local school boards, along with their local departments of health and health professionals, they need to make the decisions which are best for them. Mm-hmm. So if a school district or a superintendent says, you know what, the numbers just are too high, particularly when you look at these huge, large counties, Gwinnett, DeKalb, and, and here in the city of Atlanta, and obviously I'm not saying they're going to say this, but at some point if they want to make that decision to pull the fall sports competition, they can do that. That's right, and we would certainly support them. Uh, you know, we've got several uh schools that have done that mm-hmm. uh you know it's, it's been small schools so far riverside military academy is one and they made the decision back in march and of course theirs was made for some maybe some different reasons you know being a boarding school and these type of things but twiggs county uh and stewart county has mm-hmm. gone all virtual and and they're going to suspend their sports programs for the fall and and there could be others that do that and let's just talk about individually let's say that that a a school is going along and they've had a a couple of positive covid cases and they do the contact tracing and they have to send several kids home say it's the offensive line Mm -hmm. and they don't feel comfortable or safe playing a game then and but they want to stay in the game Mm -hmm. you know they can go ahead and and postpone that game, make it up later on if they mm-hmm. can. If they can't make it up, there's no penalty because typically when somebody breaks a contract, there's restitution and the fine involved. Mm-hmm. You know, all that would be waived and we would work with the schools the best way that we can. But as I said before, this is a fluid situation and everything is always on the table. Mm-hmm. And finally, if Georgia's numbers continue to spike, is there any chance that you all could make a decision during the season that you need to suspend it or come back and, and try again? Well, I wouldn't be truthful if I said that we couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've said from the very beginning, uh, you know, when we were having these conversations, like I said, we began to meet with our uh, physicians and medical professionals back in March. And the comment was made uh, by, by one of our physicians that, you know, we've got to be willing to pull the plug if we're willing to move forward, mm-hmm. you know, just depending on what everything tells us at that particular time. And, and I've said it a thousand times since this started, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I can't see. It's difficult for any of us to make any decision with information that we don't have yet. And, uh, you know, what we need to do is just continue to condition, to practice, to be ready, uh, you know, when the time comes to play. Mm -hmm. And while we still maintain that bubble, so to speak, as long as we can until we feel like it's safe to move outside of that. Robin Hines is the executive director of the Georgia High School Sports Association and he joined Closer Look to discuss the outlook for high school sports this fall. Executive Director Hines, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. Good luck this season to all the student-athletes out there. Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Closer Look continues now. It's 90.1 WABE, and this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Two in five child care providers will shut their doors permanently this month without additional public funding. Half of those businesses, well, they're minority-owned. This is all according to a report from the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Now, the report paints a picture of an industry struggling to survive amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And this, of course, puts a strain on many working parents, those parents who are returning to work, particularly essential workers who are trying to juggle child care and their careers. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this and how it's playing out here in Georgia, Pam Tatum. She's CEO of Quality Care for Children, a nonprofit that assists parents and child care providers. Director Tatum, thanks for taking the time. Good to see you again via Zoom. Yeah, thanks for having me. Through your lens, did you have any indication when all this started back in March that maybe here in August, We'd be talking about this pandemic still and all the concerns and how it would affect child care. No, I did not. I mean, we knew from the beginning that this was going to uh, take a big toll on child care. But, you know, the solutions that have been offered have generally been sort of one time solutions for a problem that's a month to month problem and seems to be lingering. So I take it you weren't surprised at all by the findings of that report. Two in five child care providers could soon be shutting their doors permanently, not temporarily, right. but permanently. Yeah. No, I wasn't. I mean, in Georgia right now, almost half of child care centers are still closed and about a third of family child care providers are still closed. And even those programs that are open, enrollment is extremely low, like around 32 percent. So when you, um, you know, child care is a business. I mean, it's a public good. It's early education, but it's also a business. And so when you run a business where your fixed costs have stayed the same, um, your cost of PPE, cleaning, sanitizing, and other steps you're taking to keep children safe, those have all increased. It's just impossible to even break even. Well, you mentioned this is a business. In fact, here in Georgia, it's estimated this was even just a few years ago, this was a $4.7 billion industry. You may not be able to give an exact dollar amount, but I imagine right now Georgia is nowhere near this $4.0 billion industry continuing for this fiscal year. No, definitely not. And childcare has a big impact on other industries. As you noted, parents need childcare to work. And, you know, it's been interesting. I've, when you look at this through a gender lens, you know, it is an industry dominated by women. Mm-hmm. So about 90, 94% are women, 45% of those women of color. So when you look at that, um, the loss of business and the loss of jobs for women, and then, you know, what we're seeing, you know, we look a lot at what happens to low-income families, and that's, that's our major concern. But I think a lot of people don't realize how more affluent families are impacted, and particularly women who have careers. So, you know, there's a, there's a report out that says about 33% of working parents uh, are, are leaving the, their careers to stay home and care for kids. And of course, 70% of those are women. And the women, they will never catch up financially or, in turn, or professionally once they leave their careers. 
You know, back in May, I spoke to Shannon Smith. She's the owner of Soul Shine. It's a local child care business here. And, and she talked about the challenges she faced as a business owner at that time. Take a listen. We've had parents run the gamut from we can't wait for you to open. We're so grateful to you to also saying if you open, we will not be returning. We don't agree with that decision. So, Pam, you know, owners of these facilities or whether they're in their home or they have a separate standalone business, the quagmire here is I need the income. I love what I do. We are, I, I also want to help those employees who want to come back to work. But also there is a, this is a public health crisis. Well, I mean, as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, there are these essential workers. They, they have to go to work. We want them to go to work. And I don't mean only the medical personnel, but also people who work in grocery stores. So there has to be child care. Um, child care programs are doing the best they can to keep children safe. People who work in child care are the best hand washers uh, in the world, I think, because they're, they're used to that. And they've implemented a lot of things to keep children safe. But when we have an epidemic in the community, um, child care programs are not an island alone. So mm-hmm. they're going to be impacted. So we are seeing uh, some programs having positive cases and opening and then closing and opening and closing. And it's devastating to the industry. Well, there's another tentacle tied to this because for those households who want to pay the money and, and they need the service, but perhaps they were relying on that extra money through the CARES Act, um, that extra $600 a weekly. Maybe they're trying to go out and look for a job. You know, who knows the circumstances? But that in itself also is an impact here because if that stops, then for some, they can't afford that. You know, they, they can't afford True. that child care. True. And uh, people who don't have kids often don't realize how expensive that is. So infant care in the city of Atlanta is around $10,000 a year. Um, now, the department, Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning has used some of their the money that came from the CARES Act to provide child care subsidies, uh, child care assistance to families of, uh, who are essential workers. Mm-hmm. Um but there's also income uh, requirements related to that. And those income requirements, uh, you know, if you are, if you have to make 50% of the state median income. So for a family of four, that's about $35,000. So hmm. you have to be in that income range to get assistance. As we mentioned at the beginning of this segment, working parents, especially those who are essential workers, school is starting. For some, depending on what county you live in, your child may face in-class instruction. It may may be all online. Couple that with the fact that Georgia is continuing to see an increase in the number of confirmed cases. All of this is the perfect storm. In terms of solutions, Pam, where do we begin? Is it something as simple as the federal state needs to step in and just give more money to these Child care providers, I know that sounds like a, a simple, quick fix, but what do we begin with the solutions? Because there's so much happening right now. There's this intersection of a whole lot going on. True. I, I wish I had the solution. But, you know, we, we're dealing with a child care industry that was fragile to begin with. So it really didn't work well before the pandemic. And then we've got family leave policies in this country that really don't give parents many options, right? And so... You know, the, the solution 
you know, has to be, I think, multifaceted mm -hmm. in terms of policies that need to be enacted. But when, when we rebuild the childcare system, we need to build it differently so that it works better. You know, in many countries, childcare is pretty heavily supported with government funding. And so that's part of our problem in this country. We don't give much support to childcare. So even in the best of times, parents can't afford it. How optimistic are you that whenever Congress is able to hammer out a deal here with this next round of government relief, that child care will be? Now, there has been some movement, but obviously, much like with the housing affordability issue, and we just did a segment on renters where it was estimated $16 billion a month would be needed to sustain all of those who rent in this nation. As it relates to the child care industry, are you hopeful that this next round of package will include more money? I think it will include some more money, but you know, nationally they're saying that the child care sector needs $9.6 billion a month to mm. uh, sustain itself. The House bill had $50 billion for child care. The Senate bill is more like $15 billion. So they will end up probably somewhere between those two numbers. But, you know, again, looking at this as a one time, like we're going to allocate some money this one time, is really kind of short sighted. I mean, it is a month to month program and, and childcare, the childcare industry needs funding month to month. Mm -hmm. You know, another another problem that we face is that most of the people who work in childcare are early educators. Those are the people who run the programs. For the most part, they're not business people. So, you know, now they're faced with doing cash flow projections that they didn't do before, trying to make money stretch, uh, enrollment fluctuates, so they're dealing with changing staffing constantly. Um, it's very difficult to manage business um, right now for childcare programs. And Pam, if the number that the report revealed, if those businesses are shut down permanently and the effect that might have on uh, specific communities and specifically communities of color mm -hmm. or low-income communities where a child care provider had, you know, some reasonable or affordable costs for those parents. What would that mean for those child care centers that, that are going to shut down permanently, which means they won't come back? Right. Well, you know, we're mostly worried about those small community-based childcare programs that operate in low-income communities. Those are the ones that are, they're, they're really struggling. I mean, they're all struggling, mm -hmm. but um, more affluent families will always find a solution. Um, but lower-income families are going to have a hard time finding care. And, you know, just based on normal supply-demand principles, if they're at play here, then childcare will be more expensive when it's harder to find. And so then what are low-income families going to do? I feel like this next question is probably unfair, but do you have any advice for those seeking childcare right now but are struggling not only to find it, but maybe they need a really good cost-cutting, you know, I want to say, you know, inexpensive, but one that is affordable? Well, Quality Care for Children operates a child care referral service. Mm -hmm. So if parents call 877-ALL-GA-KIDS, we can help them find programs that are open. We can also refer them to sources of funding, primarily the state, uh, Department of Early Care and Learning, their subsidy program right now, 
So that may be of help to them. But again, we're dealing with a childcare system that was not working to begin with. Mm -hmm. So families couldn't afford it before. And so it's really exacerbated all the issues that were already there. That seems to be the case with so many quality of life sectors on every conversation I have on this program. Well, Pam, long term here, whenever this nation gets to the other side or we get out of this pandemic, whenever that will be, however that will be, what does the child care system, that landscape look like? Let's say maybe six months to a year from now. Well, what we, what we are hoping is that, you know, some of the things that we ask child care providers to do, for example, running their businesses, that maybe they don't have the, that they don't have the business skills to do, that we can provide some sort of support to help them run the business side so mm-hmm. that they can focus on the early education side. We also think that as a result of the pandemic and what it's done to families, the stress, um, you know, Parents of all income levels are having a hard time balancing work and family and finances, that there's going to be a greater need for other kinds of family supports and mental health services. And through a kind of shared staffing model, we could provide those services to families in a a network of childcare programs. So we're hoping that we can create models like that that'll provide more comprehensive services and help programs operate their businesses sustainably. And Pam, again, you all feel like that for childcare and pre-K right now, that there are some options out there for for households? There are options, there are options, yes. Um, We can help them find care. Families worry about whether or not it's safe. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's a legitimate worry. And I can can say childcare programs have done, some of them have done an incredible job Um, enacting new procedures and ways to keep children safe. But again, we're in a community that has a huge epidemic right now. And childcare is not immune from that. So I understand the, you know, the fears that parents have. Pam Tatum is CEO of Quality Care for Children. We've been talking about what will happen or should happen to sustain those child care providers so desperately needed in so many communities. Pam, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The COVID-19 pandemic, how many stories, how many segments, how many conversations have we had about it? Well, we're going to have another one because this pandemic, again, we sound like a broken record, has amplified many of the existing inequities in our country. We know that from education to health care to transportation, obviously housing. And recently on this program, we've had a focus on children and families. Take a listen. You know, they, they say we're, we're, uh, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. You know, there are, there are parents, there are two parent families that are able to navigate this with, you know, inconvenience, but able to navigate it. But the folks that don't have the resources at home, that don't have this opportunity for supplemental instruction, you know, we're going to, I think one of, you know, if there are silver linings that come out of this, I think digital equity is going to be a non-negotiable in the same way that we would not tolerate walking into a school and seeing only half the kids have textbooks. And so, you know, we just sort of shrug and say, that's all they get. We're going to have to, as a community, figure out how do we get not just devices in kids' hands, which is something that, that is, we're making progress in, but, but reliable Wi-Fi. If you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have access to, to your teacher, uh, you're completely cut off. And I think, as, especially as we get into next year, 
uh, where there's not relationships with kids already between teachers, it's going to be a real challenge. So as a community, we got to figure out how to how to address some of these needs. We're mostly worried about those small community-based childcare programs that operate in low-income communities. Those are the ones that are they're they're really struggling. I mean, they're all struggling, but more affluent families will always find a solution. But lower-income families are going to have a hard time finding care, and you know, just based on normal supply-demand principles, if they're at play here, then childcare will be more expensive when it's harder to find. And so then what are low-income families going to do? Hmm. Wow, we've heard a lot of those conversations. But what other effects could the pandemic have on this current school year, on our current this current generation. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Christian Lewis. She's director of Measure America. It's a nonpartisan, nonprofit program run out of the Social Science Research Council in Brooklyn, New York. And they recently published a report called A Decade Undone, Youth Disconnection in the Age of Coronavirus. Kristen, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Rose. Before we get started, let's talk about youth disconnection. Um, define that for our listeners. Sure. So disconnected youth are young people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are out of school and out of work. That's it? Yeah, it's a pretty simple definition. And so we at Measure of America, we calculate youth disconnection rates for different places and different Mm -hmm. racial and ethnic groups because we believe that this indicator tells us something incredibly important. It tells us who in our society has the chance to lay the groundwork for a freely chosen, flourishing adulthood, and who doesn't? The data that you all have, what were the recent trends in youth disconnection before the pandemic? Sure. So, so using um, the most recent data available from the American Community Survey, we had found that the rate of youth disconnection had fallen steadily for eight years in a row from a recession-fueled high of 14.7% in 2010, all the way down to 11.2%, about 4.4 million young people in 2018. So we went from about uh, one in seven young people being disconnected or out of school and out of work to one in nine. So that was was very positive news. Um, Two things concern us, one, is that the rates of disconnection, though it fell for all groups, Mm -hmm. it it didn't change and there were still big gaps between different racial and ethnic groups. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that, you know, based on past trends, we're really projecting that the COVID-19 crisis will completely erase these eight years of progress and that the youth disconnection rate will spike even higher than it did during the Great Recession. So it could reach as high as one in five, even one in four, young people. And so why is that? So during the Great Recession, employment, the employment leg of disconnection was really hit, of course. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing both. So both school and work, the two pillars of of connection or disconnection, are being hit. Those metrics that you could attribute to this positive increase that now you're concerned about going the other way. What were those positive metrics? Was it a stable economy? What were those primary metrics that you would say led to this positive trend that now you all are concerned about? Yeah, so it was exactly that. It was the recovery, so the economic recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the before the COVID um, hit, we were having record low unemployment rates, and the economy was really chugging along, and it was pulling in 
tons of young people um, into the labor market, young people maybe who had might have some disadvantages in the labor market were nonetheless being able to find jobs much more so than in the past. Um, in addition, the um, on-time high school graduation rate has been steadily increasing nationally every year. So we had more, more young people in school also. So now what we're gonna see is that in terms of school, students are physically disconnected from school. You and I were just talking um, that the Atlantic public schools are gonna be totally virtual. Um, so in that scene, uh, you know, those decisions are being made with good reasons to keep people safe and so forth. But uh, low-income young people are going to be much harder hit um, by these kinds of decisions. You know, they are less likely to have a computer of their own to use at home. They're less likely to have reliable broadband, maybe quiet places to work. Mm -hmm. um, and imagine if you were already struggling to stay connected to school, you know, already you're at a risk of dropout. And now all the supports that help you stay in school um, are, are gone, basically. You know, you don't have the one-on-one -on -one contact with your teachers, you're not there with your friends. So we're really concerned that the dropout rate will really increase, especially for at-risk young people. So you have that with school. And then in terms of unemployment now, unemployment is um, the highest it's been since the Great Depression, basically. And so these two things combined make us really worried that young people with the fewest resources are going to be left even further behind their peers. You know, someone listening might be surprised when we talk about this next region, because I would think you might see the, a higher disconnection rate in maybe urban settings. But mm -hmm. I want to focus on Georgia because your report notes that Hancock County, which is located in the central portion of Georgia, has the, the country's highest youth disconnection rate. What do you make of that? Yeah. Hancock County? Really? Yeah, we've been we've been surprised initially about that as well. But what we found over the years is that people tend to think about disconnection as an urban problem. But and and it certainly is. There certainly are neighborhoods in urban areas um, where the disconnection rate is really high. Um, but overall, um, metro areas, suburbs have much lower rates than rural areas, and the highest rates um, are found in our rural counties. So in Georgia, there's Hancock County, as you said, where the disconnection rate is 80%, Stewart County, 72%, um, Telfair County, 50%. So these are, these are rural areas. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing to note is that when a population is really small, as it is in, in a lot of these counties, um, the rates are quite volatile. So what we're seeing in, say, Hancock, there are only 700 total youth in that age group, 16 to 24. Mm -hmm. So it is a serious problem, but it is also unusual. You know, it doesn't, it's a small place mm -hmm. um, with, with few people. And so why are rural areas um, having struggling with higher rates of disconnection? Um, there are a lot of factors. So there are fewer educational opportunities, right? If you have fewer kids, you're not setting up as many programs. There's more unemployment. There are fewer employers, fewer places to get jobs. Transportation is a huge issue mm -hmm. um, in terms of just getting, you know, getting anywhere, getting to school, getting to getting to work. So these are the kinds of barriers that um, rural young people particularly face. Let's dig into some other demographics within this disconnected youth group. Does the data reveal that it's more girls or, or boys or what is it your data reveal? Sure. So we find overall um, um, nationally 
that um, boys have a slightly higher rate of disconnection than girls. Um, and that's been true for several years. You know, girls have really um, increased their uh, enrollment in college and they complete high school at higher rates than boys do. And that really shows up in the youth disconnection rate. Um, thinking about Georgia in, in particular, mm -hmm. um, in Georgia, the disconnection rate is 12.6%. So that's a bit higher than the national average of 11.2%. And you see that boy-girl switch um, split. So 13.1% of boys in Georgia are disconnected compared to just 12.2% of girls. Um, you're also seeing a big difference in Georgia as, as in the rest of the country by race and ethnicity. So black young people, the rate of disconnection is 16.4%. Um, but black young people in Georgia are doing better than, um, than uh, black teens and young adults are in the country as a whole. So the Georgia rate is 16.4, the national rate is 17.4. And the same goes for Latino young people. Mm -hmm. So Latino young people in Georgia, the rate is 11.6% compared to 12.8% nationally. Um, but where the pattern diverges is for white young people. So white young people in Georgia have a rate of 10.6%. So that's less than the other groups in Georgia, but it's higher than their national rate, which is 9.2%. Hmm. The voice you hear is Kristen Lewis. She's the director of Measure America. And we're talking about their new report, A Decade Undone, Youth Disconnection in the Age of Coronavirus. So, Kristen, this is the part of the conversation where we, we like for hope <laughs> and optimism <laughs> to, to reign. It seems like, Unlike the the Great Recession, it's going to take more than just the economy stabilizing itself to get back on trend with this youth disconnection rate. So what needs to happen here? Sure. Um, so I guess a couple things. I mean, first of all, it's important to just keep in mind why disconnection matters. Um, so this period of emerging adulthood is when people develop the capabilities they need to live a flourishing, freely chosen life. So it's when through your academics, your clubs, sports, first jobs, and so forth, um, young people develop social skills, networks, they gain credentials, and formal and informal knowledge necessary for building a career and building a good life. And disconnected young people really are missing out on these critical school and work experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, being disconnected as a young person um, leads to lower wages, higher lifetime unemployment, and more contact with the criminal justice system. And it's important to keep in mind that we all pay a price for this. You know, young people, of course, pay the pay the highest price, but we all pay a price when large groups of Americans can't fulfill their potential. So this is something that's in the interest of everybody. Um, so in terms of what needs to be done, um, I think the first thing to do is to really have a laser-like focus on young people who are already disconnected, who are already struggling before this crisis happened. Because what happened during the, after the 2008 financial crisis, when the youth disconnection rate skyrocketed, this sort of image fixed in people's mind of these college grads living in their parents' basement, unable to find jobs. The thing about those college grads is that they recovered. You know, maybe their income, maybe their um, their wages were somewhat lowered for a few years. Mm -hmm. It took them a little bit more time to get to get settled in, but eventually, those college-educated young people were able to recover. Whereas the ones who were already struggling, they didn't recover. So I think it's really important 
that we focus now on the kids who are already disconnected as much as we can, because the people that journalists and policymakers know are the kids who's maybe who can't go, you know, to University of Georgia this year or have to do things remotely, mm-hmm. or um, young graduates who can't find a job right now. Um, and I'm not saying that their plight is not real and it's not painful and distressing for them. I have kids this age; I know they're really struggling, but. They're, they'll they'll probably be able to recover pretty well, whereas the kids who are already disconnected, they're the ones we're really worried about. And in the short term, those young people, they need monetary assistance, first of all, because they were already out of work, they weren't eligible for these kinds of um, programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the economy basically in tatters, we need to mitigate the effects of that and the fact that, say, young people are not going to have access to summer jobs and things like that. Um, And then we really need to help them continue their education. So we need way better support for online learning and we need resources to help them catch up in the fall. I mean, some kids will have been basically out of school for six months by the time the fall starts. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, you know, you hear a lot about the summer loss in in learning. And this is gonna be way worse than that, three times worse than that. Um, Plus, you know, this terrible pandemic has really disproportionately impacted black and brown communities. And so these young people are not just behind in terms of education, their families aren't just struggling economically, but they're also bearing a huge burden of trauma, a disproportionate burden of trauma. So maybe they've been sick, maybe they've lost their grandparents or their parents. You know, they've, they've experienced a lot of illness and loss in their community. And that is incredibly traumatic. And so that's something that we're also gonna really have to help young people with. And then, you know, in the longer term, we really have to address these larger issues of residential segregation and poverty, unequal quality of schools, the absence of meaningful work, the lack of voice and political power, all of these things, you know, real change in youth disconnection requires um, doing what protesters in the streets have been crying out for, you know, Mm -hmm. ending structural racism. So, um, I think that there's the short term and the long term, and we have to focus on both. And I, I think that we also need to really believe that youth disconnection is a solvable problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, the two two trillion dollar CARES Act made it pretty clear that the U.S. can pony up some resources pretty quick. I mean, that act was decided in like eight nine days. Yeah, but so, the current package they're having a little bit of challenge in trying to agree on yeah, what goes yeah. in it. Yeah, definitely. But you know. Society has failed these young people again and again. And so we have to make sure they're not at the back of the line for this for this age. Well, let, me ask you this, let me ask you this, Kristen, and, I, and my, my apologies. What do you say to someone who says, well, you just can't throw money at this, that there has to be some type of strategy, there has to be some type of pathway, because just throwing money, let's say the CARES Act gives states and, and local municipalities some money. Okay, here's some money. There has to be a strategy involved. So what do you say to someone who says it can't be done overnight, but you're saying, okay, we need we need funding. Obviously, that's how you get it going. But then what? You know? Sure. So I agree that it can't be done overnight. And I agree that, you know, just just money isn't enough. But money is a, money is a uh, necessary but not sufficient condition, right? So there has to be enough money. 
And that's, you know, that's a first important thing. Then the, the money has to be invested in proven projects, proven programs that, that have a track record that show that they can work. And there are a lot of programs like that. So the first priority has to be keeping kids in school, keeping kids from dropping out. So, you know, it's easier to keep someone from dropping out than to draw them back in, right? And the way to keep, keep them in is having, um, having projects, having, having school programs that allow young people to see a future, to see a bright future and to see a very clear pathway for getting there. So programs that say combine apprenticeships, community college classes with high schools, mm -hmm. um, working together is a really good way to build a solid bridge to a, a thriving future for young people. Who should read this report? I think that anybody who cares about young people should read this report. Um, I think policymakers should read the report. Uh, I think community groups should read the report because it talks a lot about um, the, the characteristics of disconnected young people, how they're different from connected young people. For instance, they're three times as likely to have a disability. Um, young women who are disconnected are, are three or four times as likely to have a child depending on, on where they're living. So I think that people who want to create really robust programs for um, out of school and out of work young people should read this report. And we'll have a link to the report on our website. Christian Lewis, director of Measure America. It's a nonpartisan, nonprofit program run out of the Social Science Research Council in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for sharing your data about this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Rose. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. <laughs> From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE.